Shabbat Shalom, my friends. Shabbat Shalom. I probably should introduce myself. My name is Joseph Davidson. Maybe I'm no stranger to the Christmas story, but I wonder, do you really know my story well? I've been frequenting your pageants and your nativity scenes now for centuries, but sometimes I feel more like the father of the bride at a wedding service, one who kind of lurks along the sidelines until it's time for the check to be paid. <laughs> I wondered this morning if, if I could tell you just a little bit about my story. Christmas cost me a great deal but it taught me so very much more. Let me tell you just a little bit about myself. My claim to fame is that I'm a descendant of David, mighty King David. Oh, how great were those days. For centuries, we've been longing to get back to them. It feels like decade after decade, things just got worse for our people. And I know centuries have gone by, and and probably there are hundreds, maybe thousands of descendants of David, but... It means something to me. Maybe you have somebody like that in your own family tree. I'm a descendant of, of someone great. When you don't aspire to any greatness of your own, that means a lot. When I lived, King David had long since died and his tomb was there for, for all to see. But the world over centuries had become darker and darker. And in my days, it, it almost felt like the dreams that we'd held so long had gone out completely. Listen, this is not meant to be the story of my country. It's, it's my story. So let me tell you a little bit more about me. I grew up in Bethlehem, not a big place, a little town. You just sang about it. We're just a little south of Jerusalem. It was difficult to make a living there. As a young man, I apprenticed as a carpenter. And and yet when there were no jobs, I decided to go north into the hill country. I found a a little village, Nazareth. You've never heard of it. Nobody's heard of Nazareth. In fact, they used to say because it was such a small, out-of-the-way place that nothing ever came out of Nazareth. Nothing good. We used to say nothing good or bad, just nothing. But... They were a fishing village, and where there are fishermen and boats, there's always a need for carpenters. And so I made a home, and I made a life in Nazareth. I'm a carpenter. Maybe that says something about me. I I like things that are tangible, that are real, things that you can touch. I, I like to measure and saw. I like to form and shape. I like the solidity of cedar and oak and the, and the pliability of pine. I, I'm a practical man. I like the integrity of real things, solid objects. I like the integrity of real people. And I've striven in my whole life to be solid and dependable and, and honorable. Wood is an honest thing. Understand that some of you have these new hollow doors. We we would never go for that. Solid and rigid and true. I like things that have integrity. I like that in wood and, and I like that in people. Times in Nazareth were good for me. 
And it was especially delightful the, the day that that spectacular young 15 and a half year old walked into my life. Mary, part girl, part woman, with all the exuberance and joy that lights up her eyes and, and yet all the groundedness and, and somber reflection and, and depth that marked the life of a woman. Soon after, to my great delight, came engagement. Betrothal, we called it. And it makes your engagement look like a walk in the park. Our betrothals lasted at least a year. And over the course of the year, we got to know each other's families. And the families worked out the arrangements of a dowry. And they even went to Jerusalem and they searched all the records because as, as small a country as we were, there was still the very real possibility that you were accidentally marrying a relative. And after all, we're not Alabama. So... During the days of our betrothal, I came to love her. She was a wonderful combination of, of girlish joy and delight. And, and there, were eyes, there were moments when her eyes just danced with, with joy. And yet as a woman, she stood as solid as the pillars of the temple. She was thoughtful. She, she pondered life. And when she opened her mouth and sang, the words, the, the melody that came out, it could stop your soul. During those days of betrothal, I dreamed a lot. I dreamed of, of building a house for us there in Nazareth. A house where we could raise our family, our children, many, many children. I dreamt of what life would be like with her. It's strange, isn't it? It's strange how sometimes, almost overnight, our dreams die. And they become the stuff of nightmare. I began to notice that, that Mary was withdrawing. She became very quiet. When I asked her what was wrong, she told me she just couldn't talk about it. I had to go away to Capernaum for a little while to do some work there. And while I was away, I wondered about the silence. I wondered, what have I done? What is it that her family have found in my family that would lead to this rift? Maybe they uncovered some records in the temple. Something had gone wrong with the betrothal. There would be no wedding. By the time I came back to Nazareth, I was almost beside myself with questions. I asked Mary not to shut me out of her life. And I was completely unprepared for her answer. She looked at me with tears in her eyes and and those two words that she spoke, they were like poison to the soul. I'm pregnant, she said. I'm with child. I mean, of all the things that could have come to mind, that, that was the last and the least of them. It had never occurred to me. Pregnant, but... But I'd not yet known her. I'd not laid with her. I know that's common in your day, but in my day it wasn't done. And if not me, then who? And how? And where was her family? And what would happen with the reputation that mattered so much in our world? So many questions. And I needed answers, but I was afraid. And, and I recoiled, and it all just stung like a slap in the face. And then she went on to say something else. Preposterous. She told me that she was still a virgin. As if. 
The Spirit of God, the rubbish went on. The Spirit of God had come upon her. The child that she was carrying was from above. (laughs) Here she was, some 16-year-old girl living in a fifth-rate town, and God was going to work the miracle of salvation, the Messiah of the ages, through her. It was one thing to betray our engagement, but this bordered on blasphemy. And, And I hate to admit it now, but the feeling that dominated my life was rage. Rage. Suddenly that old custom that we'd long since abandoned of taking out an adulterous woman and stoning her in the town square, suddenly it made sense. The anger passed, but the bitterness didn't. And in bitterness and in shame, I began to think about what the future could possibly hold for us. I, I want you to understand, I, I try to be a righteous man. I've tried to live an honorable life. I try to live according to Scripture. And I had a reputation here in this community. This was my home. As soon as they knew that Mary was pregnant, they'd assume what? That I was the father. Or if not me... Then even worse, I was betrothed to the mother of a bastard child. I was going to make it public. I was going to go before the elders there at the town gates and and have them sever the marriage contract, explaining I'm not responsible. But I couldn't do it. I guess love stopped me or something like it. I, I cared enough for that young girl that I couldn't see the inevitable consequences of those actions. Her life spiraling out of control into shame and necessary prostitution for survival. I couldn't, I couldn't see her abandoned and marginalized to the edges of society. And so I decided, I decided we'd do it quietly. And then we'd whisk her off someplace safe. We knew that she had to leave Nazareth. We knew how scathing was the gossip in a small community, how biting would be their words. So we decided that she would go south from Nazareth down to Hebron. She could live there with Elizabeth, her cousin, and her husband, Zechariah. They'd been good to her, like a second mom for Mary. They'd give her a home. They'd give her a place to stay. They'd protect her. In those days after Mary left, I... I waited for peace, for a settled sense that I had made the right decision, for God's condolence in my life. But I couldn't shake it from my mind. I, I tried to work there at my bench, but I, I couldn't focus, I couldn't concentrate, I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep. And then one night I had a dream. One of those terrible, disturbing Wonderful waking dreams. There I was in a darkened room, a long blackened corridor, and at the end, just a small crevice of light coming through a half-closed door, and then it swung open to radiant glory. There he was, an angelic messenger speaking to me. Joseph Davidson, do not be afraid. It was in that moment that I realized just how much fear had ruled my life. Do not be afraid. Take Mary as your wife. This child that she bears 
is indeed of the Holy Spirit. And you will call His name Jesus. And He shall save His people. I woke for the first time in many long months, not not in bleakness, but in euphoria. A, A growing sense of joy welling up within me. She was telling the truth. God was in this all along. I was so filled with excitement that I ran as far as these old knees would carry me. I ran to Hebron. I told Elizabeth and Zachariah what I'd heard from God. I apologized to Mary. Forgive me for ever doubting you. I took her back to Nazareth. As soon as we could, we stood before the elders and we exchanged our vows. We became husband and wife. It's a wise man who knows the season of life that they're in. And I knew then that we were in a season of joy. From this time forward, the blessing of God would be over our hearts and over our homes. He would protect us from all conflict. There would be no adversity, no danger, no persecution, no suffering, nothing for us. (laughs) I'm a carpenter. I'm no theologian. And I couldn't have been more wrong. It started with Caesar Augustus. Damn Caesars, always trying to line their pockets. Decided the tax revenue wasn't sufficient. And so to garner more for the country coffers, they, they would enroll, they would census everyone. I understand that in this day, those who are doing enrollment actually come to your house. Not so for us. Here was the edict. Each one would travel back to their ancestral home. There to be enrolled. Can you imagine the upheaval of humanity that ensued? As the tens of thousands, the teeming hundreds of thousands, began to move across the country. For me, it meant a return to Bethlehem. We began to make our plans, and and I thought best initially to, to leave Mary there. She was far along in her pregnancy and the trip would be hard. Three days and three nights in the arid sun and the cold nights. It would be hard. But the thought of leaving her there in Nazareth amidst all of the gossip, amidst all of the glancing eyes, we decided in the end that we would go together. We had family there, relatives. They would take us in. We'd be okay once we made it. What I didn't anticipate was the size of the crowd that had gathered there for the census. By the time we arrived, our relatives had taken in more people than they could handle. And worse, the trip, the trip had brought on the initial stages of labor in Mary. Her contractions had begun. And so I began to search frantically throughout the city. I even tried the caravansary, the, the lodging for the poorest of the poor, but it was packed. Finally, desperate for some place, I found a cave there on the outskirts of town where a farmer would shield his livestock from the howling night winds. At least we'd be out of the elements. And, and so we lay there, Mary on the straw. No place else. There was no bed, there was no board, there was nothing. I lit a small fire to keep us warm. And there it was that the baby was born. 
I didn't know what to do with you. I'm a carpenter. I'm, I'm no midwife. Mary had to be both midwife and mother. I severed the cord. I cleaned the child as best I could. I wrapped it in some of the cloths that we prepared for the inevitability of this moment. And then not wanting to lay it on the cold cave floor, I cleared out a spot in one of the cattle troughs. I put him in a manger. And then the questions began. If this wife of, if this wife of mine was, was highly favored by God, if God had been planning this now for centuries, how do you explain the cave and the dirt and the smell of livestock? No one came from Jerusalem. Nobody even came from Bethlehem. We were alone. Completely alone. Far from home. I'm not completely alone, come to think of it. There was that motley bunch. Stinking of wineskins and outdoor animals. Those, those shepherds who arrived with a preposterous story that they'd met an angel army on the hillside and, and told them to come. I guess we were welcome. We were relieved to have any guests at all. After all the hubbub of the census died down, I decided that we would stay in Bethlehem. No good going back to Nazareth now with all the gossip. And so we rented a house and, and I took what work I could. A year went by. We managed to eke out the bare minimum of existence and and after the year, we had the strangest of experiences. They're knocking on our door one evening. We're a group of the, the most remarkable foreign faces we could have imagined. From far off in the east, the land of the rising sun. Iranians, they said. Astrologers, they were. They spoke of a remarkable constellation, a star that they'd seen. They'd set out over a year ago and followed it here. They said that they stopped by Herod's place. Half-breed king. Told him that, told them that they'd heard about the birth of a rival for the throne. And what happened next, nothing could have prepared me for. These regal-looking foreign dignitaries they got down on hand and knee. And they bowed before a toddler. And they opened their packs and, and presented the most bizarre of gifts. Frankincense. And myrrh. Oh, and gold. We liked the gold. Soon after their departure... It happened a second time. A waking dream. An angelic messenger. A dire warning. Flee now. Take your wife and son and get out while you can. And so we packed hurriedly and we rushed away to Egypt. I tell you, we had never been more glad for those gifts of frankincense and myrrh and gold. For two years, 
They enabled us to survive in Egypt. We were foreigners. There was no work for us. There was no home for us. We lived off the lavish gift of those foreign visitors. After two years, we heard that the tyrant Herod had died and we made our way back home. Which home? We labored long and hard, but we decided to return to Nazareth. Hmm. Imagine that. You know, when I was young, I thought to hear the voice of God, to, to be able to see and listen to even one of God's great ambassadors, his angelic messengers, that would be a forever life-altering event. It would solidify faith, and faith would never ebb in my life. And for me, it happened not just once, but twice. Can I tell you, though, still the doubts came. Still there were moments when I began to wonder whether that dream wasn't just my own imagination. Bad fish for supper. To be honest to you, there were some days that Jesus didn't seem that different from all the other boys. He was a good son. He was obedient. But he was still a child. I watched Mary nurse him the way all the other mothers nurse their infants. You sing that hymn, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Let me tell you, he cried. He cried like he had the lungs of the author of creation itself. When we were back in Nazareth, he would come to the table along with all the other children. He wasn't performing miracles. When he fell in the streets of Nazareth, he skinned his knees and they bled. I would sit him on my lap and we'd tell stories and he fell asleep. There were times when it didn't seem all that different. When he was about 12, I remember we took a trip to Jerusalem. We went with all of our relatives to celebrate one of the great feasts. And as we were traveling back in caravan, we were separated from our son, but that was okay. We were all family here. A day went by before we realized that he was not where we thought he was and we had left him behind, the Savior of the world, and I had lost him. We turned around as quickly as we could. We went back. We climbed the mountain overlooking Jerusalem, and there we found him. Jesus, we said, we were frantic. We didn't know where you were. How could you leave us? And he said, don't you know that I would be here about my Father's work? Now listen, that sounds good in church, but imagine it's a 12-year-old saying it to you. What do you make of it? I guess my point is that, that he wasn't that different some days, and I wondered. I could never express my doubts to Mary. She, uh, she seemed to function at a whole nother level. I could never let her know that that I didn't have faith enough to shut down all the questions that filled my mind. I couldn't talk to people in the village. They had much more earthly explanations about Jesus. In fact, he never lived it down. There were times when they would throw it back in his face. We weren't born of fornication like you were, Jesus. We only have one dad. You've got two. 
You're the bastard son of an unknown father. And the adopted son of a ridiculously naive carpenter. They never let him forget it. They never let any of us forget it. His birth was always tinged by scandal. We just lived with it and we wrestled with it. In the middle of it all, there wasn't much that I could hang on to, but I hang on to this one little scrap from the Scriptures I heard as a boy. A little verse from one of the great prophets that lived centuries ago. Isaiah saying, Behold, a virgin shall conceive my Mary. She'll give forth or she'll give birth and bring forth a son. And you shall name him Emmanuel. God with us. Some of you have a faith like Mary, I expect. It's obedient, it's strong, it's rich, it's devout. You are God's special people. Maybe one or two of you, maybe you're a little bit more like me. Practical people, we live in a world of cause and effect. You like things that you can touch and hold, things that you can feel and measure, and sometimes you find it hard to believe. Faith has its moods. There were those moments when I was confronted by an angel that I was sure I would never doubt again. And then there were times when the whole thing made absolutely no sense to me. Some of you are like that. You believe in your doubts. And you doubt your beliefs. And some days you wonder if you ever really believed at all. I, I understand. All I can say is that when I was faced with those questions, I faithed my way through. When you have nothing left but to trust, I trusted my way through. Faith held me when I could hold on to nothing else. And I guess God used that. Imagine it. Joseph Davidson gets to put his thumbprint on Jesus Christ. I taught him to be a carpenter. He was good at it. What a careful, creative craftsman. He was so good at, at using his hands to form and shape wood, particularly those cattle oxen yokes. Those yokes that that he could form so meticulously and, and so lovingly that when you place them on the back of a beast, it felt like hardly a burden at all. Before too long, he became the carpenter of the village. I left my fingerprints on his life. Of course, he was also the savior of the world. And he left his fingerprints on my soul. I guess that's, that's my story. I wanted to share a little bit of it with you. You want to celebrate Christmas again this year and you ought to.
But I wanted you to know and, and maybe remember just a little bit the way God used someone unexpectedly, undeservedly. When God sent His Son to earth, He put Him in the care of a carpenter who too often believed his doubts and doubted his beliefs and yet found a way to faith his way through. Maybe that's you. Maybe there's room for that as you celebrate Christmas this year. I'm not the main character of the story. When you celebrate, you might remember that God wanted someone to take care of His boy. And He picked Joseph, David's son, a carpenter, who believed the very best that He could.